again, good morning. Good to see everybody out. Appreciate so much the uh, good job Ken did in uh, teaching the class. I uh, just want to say I don't have any football analogies, and I'm not a fan of Clemson. But I'll give, maybe I'll give you a tennis analogy. I'll, I'll stray into sports. Uh, I've been a tennis fan off and on for quite a while, going through different phases, depending on who's playing. And been watching tennis now for much of the last 10 years. And um, there's a tournament down in Miami that we've gone to several times. And uh, we went down there a couple of years ago. And if you ever think the traffic's bad here, just take a day trip to Miami and drive around all day. Unbelievable. And we always think we leave with enough time to get to where we need to be. And this tennis tournament is actually on Key Biscayne, so it, you know, everything funnels into this causeway that goes to this island. So we left, and of course, it took longer than we thought. Traffic was bad, and it, it turns into almost a white-knuckle drive, and you have to park like five miles away from the tennis stadium, and you have to catch these buses, and then you get your tickets at roll call. So we went down there, and we got to the stadium just when the match was gonna start, and as we walked out, they announced, the person we went to see it just moved on. So if you came here today to hear Dave Schmidt, I apologize. <laughs> he didn't just leave a few minutes ago. He's down in, uh, he's over on the uh, East Coast uh, in a meeting, uh, doing a lot of good work. Uh, him and Diana are over there. Please pray for them that they get back safely. But uh, we're going to spend the next few minutes uh, taking a look at God's Word. <clears throat> kind of the thoughts that I had this morning was sort of an embellishment of a the invitation I did last month, uh, and I wanted to maybe spend a little more time uh, in depth, um, and I was making the point, <coughs> I got a little congestion, I was making the point that um, what most of the world teaches today about how you come to God is a very simplistic, almost common theme just from a few scriptures from the Bible. Now, the scriptures are from the Bible, and what the scriptures say are true, but the way they pull them out of context and group them together, and these are the ones I read, Romans 3.23, these are probably familiar to most of us. For we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2.89, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And probably the most familiar passage to the world, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we're all sinners. We're all deserving of death. But God's given us a gift that we can't work, that we can't earn, and don't have to do anything for. All we have to do is believe saying. Is that really what the Bible teaches? We've been studying from the first five books of the Old Testament in the Sunday morning class for, I think we might be in our third year. It could possibly be in our fourth year. But it has been such a comprehensive, eye-opening look into who God is. You really can't know who God is 
without looking in the Old Testament. We can kind of get to know who God is from the New Testament, but the Old Testament is really where you get to know who God is. And especially the first five books, because there's this common misperception today that God's this grandfather figure with a long beard, and he just loves everybody, and he doesn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And that's not a totally unfounded perception. The, the father and the parallel of the prodigal son is that loving, caring, giving, willing to accept anybody back, even the son who basically shamed him. But that's not all who God is. What we found in the study of the first five books of the Old Testament, that God is telling us exactly who he, who he is. The depths of his righteousness, the depths of his holiness, and the depths of his authority. So I'm just going to go over some of the things that we studied to kind of get maybe a perception, perspective on who God is. It's not commonly thought of in the world. Starting with the Garden of Eden, right? God said, God provided Adam and Eve everything they needed. Perfect relationship. They wanted for nothing. But he said, don't touch that fruit. They didn't even have to eat it, according to Eve. God said, the day you touch it, they touched it. God withdrew his favor from them. Remove them from the garden. And all the suffering of the world today is born out in that very sin. God is exercising his authority. And he means what he says, and he says what he means. A few centuries later, we have the flood. He said that the thought of every heart was evil continually. It was more than God could stand, more than his holiness and his righteousness would allow him to stand. And as much as he grieved that he made mankind, he destroyed everyone in the world but eight people, the eight righteous people on the earth. It's interesting that when you compare the flood to some of the things that are talked about in Deuteronomy about clearing, about going into the promised land, and destroying nations. A lot of people say, well, you know, God said go in and kill everyone who breathes. How could that be a loving God? But we've turned the flood, the story of Noah and the ark, into this great children's story that we love to tell. But the flood, it was devastating. Think about how those people died. Sodom and Gomorrah, God destroys two cities completely because of sinful desires. Only a few were spared. Centuries after that, the Israelites are in Egypt. They become slaves. And we, to get the, the uh, favor to let the uh, Israelites go, he institutes plagues. God is punishing Pharaoh because he won't be obedient to what he wants him to do. I've always found it interesting that, that God waited ten plagues to finally make Pharaoh do what he wanted by killing the firstborn of all of Egypt. Firstborn. Children. God exercising his authority because his holiness and his righteousness demands that. 
And we know about all of the problems in the Exodus after the Israelites had seen God release them from what was probably the most powerful force, military force on the face of the earth. And they had seen many signs and wonders. And what did they do? They murmured and they were afraid. And when they sent spies in to look out the promised land, they said, no, we can't do it. After all they'd seen God to do, they didn't have enough faith. And God didn't let that whole generation go into the promised land because of that. Because he's a demanding God. He says he's a consuming fire. <laughs> you look at what happened to Moses, and this was one of the things that it, it really kind of stuck with me. All that Moses had done, all the compassion that he had for the people, every time they turned against God, he pleaded for them and he begged for them. And, we, and Moses makes one mistake, and because of that, he can't go into the promised land. God let him see it. He says, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. It just seemed a little too harsh. And we learned about all the regulations, all the thou shalt and thou shalt nots. The tabernacle and all the things that the priest had to do to be acceptable and holy and to be that representative of the people to God and actually come into his presence in the most holy place. God is not just something that we can casually think about. We learned about Nadab and Abihu, who God said, He said in Leviticus chapter 10, then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord. Some translations use strange fire. Which he had not commanded them, which God had not commanded them to use. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come to me near me, I must be regarded as holy. And therefore all the people, and before all the people I must be glorified. And then we learned about God instituted through the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord and your God in it. And in it you shall do no work. And there was a man who picked up sticks on the Sabbath. What happened to him? Stoned to death. Now God just wasn't going about making misery for the for the uh, people for the Israelites and His chosen people. He did choose them, although sometimes I, I think they forgot that they were chosen, rather thinking that they were entitled. But as we're coming to the end of our study in, in Deuteronomy, chapter twenty-eight is really sort of the closing argument for the first five books of the Old Testament, and it's really a beautiful. Thing that God says of what he's, what he's going to do to his people. It says in Deuteronomy 28, Now it shall, shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the Lord your God to observe carefully all of his commandments, which I commanded you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord. Imagine that. 
And if you're right with God, his blessings, you can't escape and they will overtake you. What a blessed thought. And for the next 14 or 15 verses, God talks about all the good things he's going to do to those who obey him. But the 50 or so verses after that, God tells them what he's going to do to them and what's going to happen to them if they don't obey. It is a you should read Deuteronomy 28 about once a month to really get to know who God is. Fast forward to the New Testament. God knows us because he created us. I have no doubt about that, regardless of what science tells us. God created the heavens and the earth. And it was God's plan even before the world was created make a way for mankind to come back to him. He knew us. He created us. He gave us free will. He knew there was a possibility that we would fall and that we would need a Savior. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Talking about Jesus. Jesus was there in the beginning because Jesus is God. And the Trinity is a hard concept, especially when you read through the New Testament, the Gospels, and some of the language that uses that that Jesus doesn't even know the day he's going to come back. Just God the Father knows that day. And how could, it, how could they all three be God? It, it's challenging to fully understand that the Almighty God has three personalities. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the, Jesus truly is God. It says that he would be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. He was the manifestation, the physical manifestation of God. On the earth. Because it goes on to say in John 1 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory that was of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now keep in mind what we just went over about who God was telling us who he is in the Old Testament, through all the things that happened, through the times that he had to exact his punishment and his judgment on those who weren't faithful didn't do what he said Jesus comes to this earth and he lives a perfect life performs signs and miracles that had never been seen before by mankind calm the storm there were lots of signs and wonders and miracles signs and wonders going on throughout the times but the time when Jesus rebuked the storm nobody had ever seen a man stopped the wind. Yet, they rejected him because they had moved so far away from what God wanted them to be. They couldn't even see the glory of God in God in the flesh. And it was so bad that they put him on the cross. Wouldn't you think you would want to know more about what Jesus was saying rather than just being filled with envy and plotting to kill him from the very beginning? 
That's what they wanted to do. They had moved so far from what they, from what God is to what they thought he was, like so many denominations today, they moved so far away in their perception of who God is. We remember the sacrifice that he did, that he instituted as in the upper room when he ate the Passover for the, with the apostles for the last time. After that, it says in Luke 22, verses 39 through 44. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And verse 44 really just jumped out of me as I was thinking about possibly doing another lesson on suffering, something I don't know very little about at all. But it says... And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The God that we just talked about from the Old Testament is now on earth in agony. Agony. Could that be the same God? How is that possible? That he would allow himself to go through that. You know, there's a common expression we talk about when we might be in a little bit of trouble and we don't know what's going on, and we'll say, boy, I was sweating out, right? And being in Florida for about 50 years, there's been times when I've been out playing sports in the heat or working in the yard, but I've never just sat there and had sweat fall from me like it was drops of blood, like it just pouring off of me. For no reason but just being in the agony of what awaits Jesus in just a few hours. Could this be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? What was going to happen to Jesus? We studied in Deuteronomy. It said, Cursed is a man who is hanged on a tree. What does God allow himself to go through? What does he allow himself? What does he allow to be done? He allows him to be hanged on a tree. It says he despised the shame. Shame that he had to go through to redeem all of us here. Why would God do that to him? I've probably partaken of the Lord's Supper over the years, maybe a thousand times. And there are still occasions when we gather around the table that I ask myself, why would God do this? Why would he do this for me? Look at the state of the world. It's always been... Some will tell you that today, that the world today is not as bad as it was in many times past. And that, that very well may be, but 
The world is not overall a happy place. Why would God do that to us? So I think back about those people that go around and try to tell you that all you have to do is believe in God and you'll be saved. Don't have to do anything. No works. Can't earn it. Don't have to do a single thing. And you think about what God went through to provide us with salvation. You know, Jesus told a lot of parables about what the kingdom was like. And it says in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. He's talking about making a real commitment to something that you find that's more valuable than anything that's ever existed. Jesus said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Even if you gain the whole world, what happens if you lose your soul? It can't be traded for something material. Not even everything that's material. Does that sound like all you have to do is believe? He's talking about when he says sell all that he has and he buys that field, he's saying that there is nothing that's going to come between you and seeking the kingdom of heaven. No matter what you have to do, no matter what you have to give up, even your own family, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. You cannot let them get in the way. Some of you may have heard of Joel Osteen. He's a, a well-known preacher. I'm not sure he he's qualifies as a televangelist. They do broadcast his sermons. But I don't think he's what you would call him in the typical way we think of a televangelist. But he has a stadium where he filled. He actually bought a stadium. And he is a feel-good preacher. All of his stories, if you ever watch him on TV, all of his little vignettes start out. Somebody has a, somebody's having trouble. They're down on their luck. They're hit very bottom. But things turn around. They work hard. Next thing you know, they're back on their feet. By the end of the story, everything is right. <clears throat> Here's what he says at the end of his broadcast. He says, say this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. Come into my heart. Wash me clean. I make you my Lord and my Savior. And he says, friends, if you said that prayer, Is that all? Can you imagine the millions of people that may be watching that and they're sitting at home and they say that and that is all they know about Jesus and God and they don't know anything about what he's told us and all the suffering that Jesus went through to make salvation available to him? I find it interesting that one of the, the end of the thing says, I make you my Savior, my Lord and Savior. I make you. How about that? No, really, it's me begging, begging you. Please, please 
my sins. Please forgive me of my sins. Please, as we talked about back in January, and Dave preached on being a Christian means being a slave. Please let me be your slave. It just seems like it's a little common, doesn't it? It's like there's, there's nothing to it. Hebrews warns about treating salvation as something that's common. For if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. Fearful expectation of judgment. God's one thing we learned in the Old Testament is God will exercise judgment. I don't think God ever exercises judgment and is happy about it. I think he, he mourns over that judgment every single time, but it will happen. God has proved through his word that judgment will happen. And fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy of those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know he who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. It's serious business. There are those that say, not only all you have to do is believe, but once you believe, you can't fall away. It just said in those passages that we live, if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's gone if you're not obedient to God. And I don't, even, I don't want to give anybody the impression that I say those kind of things casually because every one of us here has someone that we love dear, dearly, our closest relatives that we think about and pray about and mourn about that are Christians. But I'm not allowed the freedom to say, I think they're okay because they're good people because Jesus said, I can't put them above his word and him. I think Peter makes the <clears throat> proper case on the day of Pentecost. If you want to go and find some place that talks about what it means to be saved, let's look at Acts, 2, 30, uh, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. Says there. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, Peter in his sermon goes back and he brings forth the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. He lays out the facts. He's talking to an audience that would have known those scriptures. He's, he makes the case, the factual case about who Jesus is. And then he, in his summary, as therefore let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus whom he crucified both Lord and Christ now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles men and brethren what shall we do they found out they weren't right with God found out that they were in trouble they found out that they had sinned they realized for the first time in their life that they were sinners and they knew what that meant and if you're here today and you're not right 
what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right, it's true. It is a gift. God has given it to you. know, it's not... We don't, it's not that we don't have to do anything because it's a gift. It's a gift because we couldn't do anything about it. We had a debt we couldn't pay, and it had to be given to us. Salvation had to be provided to us from God. Nothing we could do. But that doesn't mean there's not anything we have to do to be obedient. For the promises to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call, and with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were baptized that day. About 3,000 souls were added to them. That's the gospel message. But, wait, there's more. Is that all they had to do? Was that it? From then on, that it? That's done? They're baptized? They go, they go back to their countries? Because there were many people there in Jerusalem for the Passover. Continuing on in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Why did Peter say, okay, you guys believe. Thank you. Class is over. Those people continued steadfastly. They were committed to the teachings of the Lord. And the rest of the New Testament details the struggles that people have, that the early Christians had, just like we have today. But never once did any of the apostles say, don't worry. It's a gift. Oh, you, no, you believe, right? It's a commitment. It's a and that's what we want you to do here today. Think about your commitment to the Lord and what it means. Don't think you're just good enough to make it to heaven. Nobody is. Unless they receive Christ Jesus. As it said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. That's how you're washed clean. Not by praying Jesus to washed. You're washed clean through baptism. You're dying. That, that old person that's in you is dying. Dying to sin. Rising as a new creature to walk in righteousness. If you want to do that today, we have water available and we can, we can baptize you into Christ. You can be forgiven of your sins and you can leave here rejoicing. Would you do that, Robbie Thurman, as we stand here?